Hey there, fellow Year of Polygamy listeners. This is Glenn Ostlin from the Infants on Thrones podcast. And Lindsay has asked me to put together this little promo to share with you some very exciting news. First of all, it goes without saying that Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years. But I'm going to say it anyway. Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years. And now she's ready to take it to the next level. Now, what exactly is that next level? Have any of you listened to the Serial podcast? From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. How about S-Town? Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. Finding Richard Simmons? Yeah, that Richard Simmons. You know the guy. Short shorts, bedazzled tank tops, a big curly head of hair, halfway between Jimi Hendrix and Little Orphan Annie. Now, there are some really amazing podcasts out there right now that tell stories in a carefully crafted, highly produced, very engaging way. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if the stories that Lindsay has uncovered here on the Europe Polygamy podcast could be told in that same serial kind of style? Well, that's exactly what Lindsay wants to do. And I'm going to help her do it. And all of you can too. Because now I've been telling Lindsay all about how great it has been since Infants on Thrones started our Patreon page this past June. So guess what? Lindsay is starting a Patreon page for Year of Polygamy too. I know, right? And you can all support her as her patrons. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help support Lindsay's efforts not only to keep Year of Polygamy podcast continuing, but to also start crafting a new sister podcast, a, I don't know, Year of Polygamy storytellers kind of thing. So that something like this... There was supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. The men, the Mormon men are getting more and more upset. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Could sound a little more like something like this. There was supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Now, I know that's kind of cheesy sounding. You know, it just added some music, some sound effects. But what we would do is actually script out some stories, would create seasons and would have episodes and would craft it to tell the many compelling stories that there are to tell from the Year of Polygamy podcast. Now, like I said, Lindsay will continue to bring you the Year of Polygamy podcast as she has in the past. That's not going to change. But your support on Patreon will free up some time and resources so that Lindsay can focus on a new direction for a sister podcast. Plus, you really just want to see this woman succeed, don't you? I do. So head over to Patreon forward slash Year of Polygamy and show your support for Lindsay today. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer?
Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We have a recorded interview of someone who I wasn't really expecting to record at the time. It just sort of happened. So the audio is really rough. I'm going to give you some context first, and then I'm going to play the the raw interview, basically. It's really unedited, only edited for sound. There were a few things that were taken out uh, that were asked for by the person that I interviewed. But this interview really sums up something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is sort of the paradox of this community that we're dealing with. What it means to be human, what it means to be Mormon, what it means to be complicated. This work is especially full of paradoxes. Or maybe there's something about it that's just a good medium to discover the paradoxes in. It's like mining pieces of coal from like this darkened earth underneath the ground. Mormonism itself to a great degree, is really just a giant paradox. The person that I interviewed today, Robert Ray Black, is no different. I met him on a hot day in July of 2017. Moroni Jessup, who was just in the last episode and helped set this up a little bit, he called me up and he and I drove up to a sleepy suburb in Clearfield, Utah, which is a town that's towards the north end of the state of Utah. As we turned off the freeway to Robert's neighborhood, I really didn't know what to expect. My world is really full of prophets these days. I've met more prophets in the last three years to fill a Bible. And this is unusual because I grew up on a steady diet of prophets. Joseph F. Smith, Remember the F, Heber J. Grant, and George Albert Smith. These were words from a song I learned as a young child to remember all the names of the prophets I was supposed to follow. We even have a primary song that we're taught as young children, follow the prophet. Don't go astray, follow the prophet, he knows the way. Might have gotten those backwards. For me, prophets were successful businessmen in tailored suits, usually from Woolen Mills, which is a local Mormon-owned suit shop in downtown Salt Lake City. Prophets had kind, soft eyes and white hair, clean-shaven faces, and voices that sounded wise and firm. And they spoke these kind of words that would, like, raise the hair on the back of your neck or lull you to sleep on a lazy General Conference Sunday. How many of you that were Mormon fell asleep (laughs) listening to General Conference? Although they were corporate men, I had pictures of them hung in my room as a teenage girl, as if they were uh, teen idols. And while we never thought of them as, you know, sexy icons or anything like that, they were more like beloved fathers, patriarchs that watched down on us as we slept. But they still were corporate men, clean cut and crafted, and we were never to get too close to them. And if we did, the lucky few of us who had the chance to be in the same room as one of these men, we would usually cry and swoon as if we were 17 at a Mick Jagger concert. So there's a paradox right there. I mean, prophets in the LDS church are often rock stars, but without the rock. (laughs) I don't know if that makes any sense. But for years, this is what the stuff prophets were made of for me. Outside of Mormonism, the idea of prophets is pretty simple. It's pretty broad. It's really anyone who claims to commune with the divine and receive instruction or sometimes becoming, often becoming a mediary, intermediary between, 
you know, God, whatever God is, and the people. In Mormonism, the idea gets a lot more complicated because it's tied to authority. Mormons believe that every individual can commune with God and receive personal instruction. We call this personal revelation in the church. But our prophet has to have proper priesthood authority to be able to tell others what to do. And then even this is being super reductive because then we have bishops and stake presidents and patriarchs and all other sorts of conduits to commune with the divine who have stewardship or uh, the ability to tell others what to do, depending on what their position is and what their authority is within uh, the institution. Let's just say that in most Mormon groups, the prophet has the authority to speak to God and receive instruction. But what happens if you have a religion that relies on the idea that individuals can have personal revelation, where your revelation from God contradicts that of the proper priesthood authority? This actually happens all the time, more than any Mormons know how to deal with. In fact, I would say it's the most frustrating and messy tension in Mormonism. On a really benign level, it can mean being able to realize the advice your bishop gave you about, you know, you went to your bishop with some big heavy problem and he gave you some advice that contradicted with your answer to prayer. You just realize that that's your bishop's opinion and you don't have to listen to it and go on your merry little way. But on an institutional level, this can be quite a headache as we've seen throughout this podcast. What good is your authority if people don't listen to your instructions you receive from God? What does that mean for your institution if people stop following your rules? This is why the LDS Church, in my opinion, still continues to excommunicate people who question their authority. Mormons are so obsessed with authority. And as you've listened to this podcast, you know authority is pretty important. It's what separates all the different Mormon groups from one another who has proper authority. Authority is so important in Mormonism. Authorities are the keys, the the rights to the keys to open the windows of heaven. And they're not for everybody. There's really no getting around authority in Mormonism. There isn't. Because authority means power to control the narrative of what God wants. And in the LDS hierarchy right now, authority is represented by bureaucracy. That's just what it is. It's tailored suits and clean-shaven faces and incisive policy and boardroom revelations signed off by lawyers and publicity firms. Your average LDS Mormon would not like to hear it that way because that's not how we experience it. That's not certainly not how I experienced it. I experienced the sweet, loving face of President Gordon B. Hinckley smiling down on me over my bedroom lamp as I read my scriptures at night. I didn't see him as a boardroom you know, board of directors type company man. But he was both, right? This is the paradox of Mormonism. If you decouple the idea of profit from authority, what are you left with in Mormonism? These ideas of profit show up in almost every culture that I can think of, from the Yoruba regions of West Africa to the Native American ghost dances to, you know, Judaism or Islam and Christianity. And in most traditions outside of Mormonism, I would say that it would not be unlikely to have prophets who are strange and unusual. 
Maybe you get like more of an Old Testament prophet like Isaiah who walked barefoot for three years to warn people of upcoming captivity. Or someone like the ascetic monk uh, Simeon Stylites, who was famous for living in solitary confinement inside a cell. He abandoned all personal hygiene and basically lived the life of a beast, inflicting pain and voluntary suffering to commune with the divine. For me, this interview that I that I am going to share with you today explores these questions of what a prophet is. Is a prophet someone with authority? Is a prophet someone with keys? Is a prophet someone who is strange? Is a prophet someone who is an ascetic? Who is a prophet? Robert Ray Black, to me, is more of a Nostradamus, you know, someone who made the church really mad as they start to change their ideas and commune with God. It's as if Nostradamus meets the Persian mystic Manny, who meets ascetic, an ascetic Buddha. He's, he's quite the paradox. Moroni and I drove up to a suburb in Clearfield, and we turned this corner into this quiet trailer park in the shade of high-rise apartments. And I want you to picture, I want you to walk through this experience because you're going to hear the interview. We walked past a typical fair of pink flamingos and lawn gnomes until we find this trailer home of Robert Ray Black. And the door opens and we are met by a woman who at first I assumed was a daughter. And we walk inside. It's a very, very small trailer home. And there's an old man sitting in his pajamas, his legs half covered by a blanket, his bare toes sticking out, hooked up to um, oxygen and apologizing for catheter bags and, and things like that. There's a nurse fidgeting in the back room with medicine. And You'll hear all of this show up in the audio. We have a lot you there's a fan on um, that they had to turn off so we could have better audio. So we have no air conditioning at times. And I tried to take out as much as I could, you know, people wrestling for medicine to give Robert Ray Black, whose health is very poor, as he laid almost flat on his back in, it, in an easy chair behind a very interesting painting that was given to him by a woman that was almost going to be one of his plural wives. It was a strange painting of a giant footprint about ready to crush an army of ants. When I asked about this portrait on the wall, what it meant, it was explained to me by the woman in the room, her name was Rebecca, who told me that it was a woman that Robert was courting. She left it to him as a parting gift, and it was a story of an ant that was about to get crushed and she was sad and mourning because her whole family was going to die. This, in just the regular t trailer park, I interviewed Robert as Rebecca sat in a comfortable house dress, coloring coloring books. And as we're talking halfway through my interview with Robert, it dawns on me that, Ro that Rebecca is not his daughter, it's his wife. I managed to interview her, but of course it was over the talking of other people, so the audio is really not great. Rebecca's really interesting. When you first meet her, you don't quite know what to think. She explained very frankly to me that she has a chromosome disorder. She's missing an, a gene. She's missing a chromosome, or she has an extra chromosome, and um, because of this, she was always looked down on her whole life. She was given to Robert, and he talks about this. She was given to him as a plural wife by her family. And I really wondered about the ethics of this, a plural wife 
who would be considered high needs or special needs, possibly, even if they were high functioning, given as a young girl at 17 years old to a man in his 30s or 40s. What are the ethics of that? But when you talk to Rebecca, she explains that her family treated her like a dog. They wouldn't let her bathe. And Robert was kind to her, and it was a good thing for her. These are the paradoxes you explore when you dive down these these rabbit holes of Mormon fundamentalism. Are these just people who can't be in community anywhere? Or are they people that really see something that other people don't? What does it mean for someone like Robert Ray Black, who will explain as he's gone through his Mormon experience, what it's like to carry, you know, a shotgun into a courthouse but also be able to give a very kind, loving, patriarchal blessing to someone. What it means to claim God's true authority on earth, but then be given young women as wives as almost a gift. Where are the ethics there? Robert Ray Black is is definitely this man of paradox. He's aging and his health is poor. But if you go to his Facebook page right now, he's on Facebook. He has a cartoon meme as his profile picture. And here's his introduction on Facebook. It says, I am a Muslim. Trump can go to hell. And of course, he's talking about President Donald Trump. In the world of Mormon fundamentalism, to have someone who is against Donald Trump is very fascinating because a lot of Mormon fundamentalists traditionally are very conservative or, as we say in America, right wing. And a lot of them voted for Donald Trump this election, but not Robert Ray Black. And what about the Muslim part? What's that about? We explore this in the interview as well, what that means, how that makes sense. How does a man like this, living in a single wide trailer in Clearfield, Utah, hooked up to oxygen and catheter bags, have over 25 wives? How does he have a following? What kind of authority does he have? What does it mean? What kind of ethics does he have? What do those mean? Those are all the questions we're going to explore in the interview. And although the audio is a little bumpy, I say it's definitely worth listening and sticking it out. Robert is just an interesting man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you before we go into the interview of a comment that Robert Ray left in a blog post written by David Bakavoy about faith and belief in 2013. This is a comment that Robert wrote. He said, quote, I am a doubter. Worse, I am a doubting plague. I believe too much and doubt much. I cannot explain it. I believe the scriptures, but not the backstory. I especially believe the messages of the Book of Mormon. It was a gift from God. But that it was a revealed document, possibly through the stone, but no way could it be any kind of translation of anything. There were no Nephites, except as a vehicle for the story. I know it makes no sense. But my testimony of the Book of Mormon was a gift from God that I cannot deny. But its origins, I do not believe at all. I have the same problem with the Old Testament, the New Testament, and D&C, authoritative pronouncements. Most revelations have to be checked again against personal bias or motivation of the revelator. My little offshoot church is made up of mostly men with serious personality disorders or suffer from disassociative disorders. Gifts of the Spirit abound. Everything from tongues to raising the dead. 
Curiously, nearly all have had a revelation that under no circumstances were we to do anything that would cause us to lose our membership in the LDS Church. We believe a wide range of fairy tales, including the Book of Mormon. But I have an education. I know so many people that know the Book of Mormon is true, that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, so was President Benson, Lauren Woolley, and Joel F. LeBaron, that the earth is hollow, that the ten tribes live on the other side of the moon, and that President Obama is the Antichrist. There really aren't any with the same set of ideologies. But that is mostly true of members of the church also. There are, however, those who believe that they have been taught in the correlated church, never questioning even absurdities, no matter the evidence. This is brought out by somewhat by the publication of the Hales' Defense of Joseph's Polygamy. There's a gal who has studied it carefully and knows that Joseph did no such thing. He said that he didn't, so he didn't. She knows it. It was all a vast, complicated conspiracy conceived by a sexual predator, Brigham Young. He and his co-conspirators went around and forged letters, journals, etc., even those recently uncovered. Joseph said it, so it must be true. And then there are the followers of Brigham. He was a prophet of God. He said that Adam was God and would not lie. The earth is a living organism and breathes in and out, causing the tides. The temple should have been made of adobe. Brigham said it and must be true. Warren Jeffs is a prophet of God. I know him personally and know that he would not lead any astray. Wearing red clothes is a sign that we are in a league with the devil and bicycles are wicked. If our husbands are not to touch us, then it will be the will of God. Everything has been led astray but us. We must follow our file leader. Take your pick. There's an ideology for each of us. The Bible is inerrant and the Constitution was written by the finger of God. And the black man is really only worth three-fifths of a white man. Women should keep quiet and wear a cloth over their heads. Oh, we are so proud of our pure doctrines. The prophet will never lead us astray. If he were to do so, God would take him. Never mind the ministry of President Lee and Hunter were so short. I don't know anything about the old-timers of President Benson or the madness of President Kimball. It is all a lie told by the core horrors of the church. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. If we just live a good life, that is all that matters. For me, it's a temple endowment. I love it, so it must be true. I've just got to keep that that was given to me. Ignore other variations. Live by the principle taught in the Book of Mormon. Love, care, and try to understand. Life is a glass darkly. I want with all my heart to return to the church of my youth. But there is no way in hell that I could ever that it could ever happen. Besides, that church no longer exists. God's is a dynamic of a living church, changing as time demands. The personhood of God must fit the modality of accepted beliefs. What is truth after all? Whatever it is, it is supposed to set us free. Let freedom ring and do unto others. Let others strive with themselves and pray. Let us find God. End quote. And with that, as is usually my practice for this podcast, it's always better if we let people tell their own stories first. So I'm going to let Robert Ray Black tell his. Could you tell me about your story and, and your Mormon story? I was president of the 422nd Guam Assembly, St. Louis State Mission President, uh, State Mission President. And uh, I was fired from my job because I was LDS, and they didn't think that it was 
brought much honor to the to the uh, community. What was your job? Oh, I was uh, the uh, head librarian for the Granite City Public Library. And they fired you for being LDS? Uh, yes. Well, I was hired. I was hired by one library board, and the mayor was uh, brought in under the promise to get rid of me and put in a new librarian who was not LDS. Why did they not like you being LDS? Well, well, because Mormons are intolerant of females. Were you intolerant of females? Oh no, I've always loved to have women around me. <laughs> I, you know, I have, I have a large family, twenty-five wives. Most of my wives are women. The new, the new mayor, when he came into office, he demanded that I leave. Were he, you... had, he had no, he had no authority though, because it, it was the library board that did that kind of thing. So he asked them to leave, and he had, he appointed them. The library board. Were you practicing the principle then? No, but I was involved in a lot of hairy stuff, healing the sick, raising the dead, speaking in tongues. Uh, I made the church pretty nervous. On the other hand, we had the highest uh, baptismal rate of, of any other place in the mission. High enough to where our missionaries were given a car or before they got around on the bicycle. But the missionaries refused the call because it would impinge on their, um, on their faith. And they thought that hard work contributed to faith, which contributed to, uh, a baptism rate. What year would this have been? Uh, this would have been 1974, and there was a group of people that was gathering around me that liked to come over for a fireside and, and uh, hear my my sermons. Would you do special healings or blessings then at the firesides? Uh, no. You would just you would just speak. Yes. Did you did you uh, teach about polygamy or plural marriage? Uh, then some somewhat, somewhat. What were you What were you teaching from? Sorry. Were you te- What were you reading or sharing or reading from at these firesides? Just the scriptures or other no, just, works? Just the scriptures. Uh, that's basically always ever been. Eventually, I put together a uh, a book, and if you haven't read the book in preparation for this, then shame on you. <laughs> I've read your book. Oh, thank you. What remind me of the name? The New and Everlasting Covenant okay. of Marriage that does not belong there. It's a book on temple doctrine. Uh, a small part of it has to do with marriage. Were you, were you associating with uh, Ross LeBaron at this time yet, or no? Um, but um, I, I, 
I came to know Ross LeBaron. I had a son that was that was uh, given a name and a blessing, and uh, part of the circle was was Fred and uh, 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 Fred Collier, Fred Collier, and John Singer. John Singer had been excommunicated, uh, but uh, the leadership did not know that. They, anyway. So those men helped bless your son. Yes. When did you first? Did you grow up always um, knowing about the principle and about some of the things that most LDS people don't know? Or how did you I, come I grew to up it? in a sh- suburb of uh, Short Creek, Fredonia, Arizona. Okay. We had twigs in, in the area, went to school as I did. But so, you were LDS. Yes, I was. I was kind of a super Mormon. I was involved with genealogy. I've been teaching genealogy since I was 14 years old. Were you? Uh, are you related to any of the other blacks in Short Creek? Or? No. So that's just a coincidence that you had the same last names. Yeah, that's way coincidental. What did you think of the people in Short Creek? Well, I defended them. You defended them. Uh, my father uh, was a friend to them. He was chosen to speak at uh, at uh, the graduation ceremony for for high school. I went to that. Uh, I loved it. When I was a senior at BYU and searching for a topic for my senior history paper, I chose the 1953 raid. I did. Uh, a lot of research on that particular thing. I read the entire uh, series of Truth magazine and the sister magazine, I forget what it's called. Star of Truth. Star of Truth. And so I wrote my paper on that. And my uh, senior history advisor was uh, James. The name is important because he and one other historian smuggled out of the uh, vault of the first presidency the secret generals of William Clayton. James Allen? Yes. He was a BYU professor? Yes. You didn't know that? I never went to BYU. I was an Aggie, so I stayed away from that stuff. An, An Aggie? Wow. James Brown Allen. He was the assistant church historian. He eventually became so, I think. But Alfred and I invited our son over. Hopefully, he does a museum. Okay. So, uh, so I wrote the paper. I met a lot of people. I had the date to interview the mayor of uh, Short Creek. They lost track of when I was supposed to come. So, I was a day early in their uh, estimation. So he was out, uh, the mayor, and I just hung around his office until he returned, and that was uh, six hours or so. I got an awful lot of color 
uh, that my lines or name that comes to mind did not intend for me to, to learn. He was uh, quite upset. His, uh, his office staff was his wives. And they were not properly instructed. So there was that, and uh, I was uh, investigating whether or not I should join up with uh, the FLBS, as they are now uh, labeled. Guy uh, Musser was the one in charge. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't the one in charge, but he was one of the leading lights. In the town? Well, in the uh, movement. Sure. So Leroy, Leroy Johnson was probably the head then of that organization? I'm guessing. In 74? Yeah. That would have been Leroy Johnson. Uh, that would have been, let's see, that would have been 68. So you investigated FLDS. Why didn't you join? Well, I went to one of their meetings. We had twins. My wife went with me. We had twins. And uh, I came down with a serious uh, diarrhea. We just screwed out, you know, all over everywhere. And uh, we needed a place to wash up. We returned, and whoever was speaking at that time pointed us out as spies. And I did not make my wife feel very good. So you didn't feel like they were very welcoming? Well, I, I did, but, you know, I expected this kind of thing, but my wife did not. They thought you were spies for the LDS? They thought I was, they thought I was a spy. Uh, for the LDS, I'm not sure. They just didn't trust you? They thought I was a spy. Now, um, the guy that, that invited me had not uh, properly filled them in as, as to who, who I was. I'm trying to remember his name. A guy, uh, Musser, married one of his daughters. So I wrote the paper. Um, in the process, I read all of uh, the fundamentalist literature I could put my hands on. And in St. Louis, I uh, had this fireside. State president knew that I had believed the out-of-God doctrine. He says, Robert, I've been a, I've been a bishop, a state president for 35 years. And I want you to know that actual polygamists believe that doctrine. So when I, when I left the St. Louis area, there were many uh, that left with me. And they were, they were all of the lights in the, uh, state. So when I left, when uh, Elders Quorum, President, Ward Clerks, they all left with me. Uh, not really with me, but they chose as a reason to leave. The reason that I chose. And the state organization did not know that, that there was no real connection. But these men were a part of my uh, uh, fireside. And there was a lady named Bonnie Norder who was in love with me. And really quick, what area was your ward in at the time? Where were you living at the time? Uh, Granite City, Illinois. You're in Illinois, Granite City, Illinois. And that's where you were the librarian? Yes. Okay. 
So a woman was in love with you. She's writing me love letters all the time. But she worked as a secretary to not only a man that was in the state presidency, but when I left, when that was reorganized, and uh, this man became the state patriarch. And so Bonnie Norger took down his blessings and that. And he would edit them to his satisfaction, and and they would be recorded that way. That disturbed her a lot. But uh, she went to him and she said, what do you think about my becoming a poor wife? And he said, well, are, are you talking about Robert Black? And she says, I'm not going to answer that question. Do you know Robert Black? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question either. So at this time, you were only married to one woman. That's true. So we moved into Salt Lake. I think it was the Kansas State, but I'm not. So what happened with this woman? Did she follow you? Did she become a plural wife? No, she was out there still uh, in St. Louis. Uh, but because the state presidency was absolutely sure that she was my plural wife, uh, they were not only moving on me, but they were moving on her also. And I felt really bad about this. So I bundled up my letters and took them to the bishop and had him read my letters, her love letters to me. Uh, definitely improper, but they showed that she was not married to me. And I had my bishop call her bishop, and uh, the charges were dropped. But why didn't you? Why didn't you make her a plural wife? I can't divulge that. When there was a complaint drawn up against me in the St. Louis stake, I disappeared and everybody that I knew uh, more or less disappeared with me. And in, the, in an attempt to stem the flow of the, the state priesthood uh, meeting, in-state priesthood meeting, um, it was announced that I had been excommunicated for adultery. This is three months before I was actually excommunicated. So they announced this in, in your Illinois stake? It was St. Louis stake. Sorry, St. Louis, so... You know, I, I lived and worked in Illinois, but I was in St. Louis State. Okay, so in Saint, back in St. Louis, they they announced that you're excommunicated, but you're on your way to Salt Lake now. Uh, yes, and I wouldn't have known that except except the full time missionaries were absolutely they thought I was some sort of a prophet. So they were lo the missionaries were loyal to you and would give you word. And so they sent me they sent me a letter saying that I. That everybody had been told that the state priesthood being had been excommunicated for adultery. And that was a violation of church procedure to do that. Anyway, they didn't know exactly where I was. And Elder Peterson 
was on the hunt for me. That's Marky Peterson? Yes. When he finally found me, he went to the state president and demanded that I be excommunicated. Now, the state president was present when I gave my son his name and blessing. And uh, he told Elder Peterson that he had never been in a meeting before when the Spirit of God was as great as it was then and, and that he would not excommunicate me. In fact, he gave me a, a temple recommend. He said he wasn't even going to ask me the questions because, because the Spirit revealed to him or whatever spirits that revealed to the president. <laughs> anyway, um, and Elder Peterson said, well, I'll have you removed. We'll put somebody in who, who, who will do that. So my state president was the brother of Harold B. Lee. So you were saying that Marky Peterson... He talked to, he talked to my state president, President Lee, brother of Harold B. Lee. And uh, Elder Peterson told him, excommunicate me, he refused. Now, by this time, my uh, bishop had read all of my letters, and he wanted to be in on what was happening to me. So I told him, uh, it's, it's okay. Nevertheless, uh, we discovered that the power of an apostle was greater than the power of a brother of Harold B. Lee. So he was dismissed. Elder Peterson was stopped by the police for speeding, and uh, he rolled down his window, and this motorcycle cop uh, came over and said, you're speeding. Elder Peterson says, you know who I am? And the uh, motorcycle cop said, well, uh, you, you are Mark E. Pearson. You're a member of the 12, but you are still speeding, and I'm going to give you a ticket. <laughs> that gave, gave him, uh, when he was searching for a, a replacement for President Lee, he remembered this little encounter, and uh, he was chosen to be the next state president. The man had no experience in the church before this. He was never in a bishopric, high council, never in a one clerk, uh, nothing. And so he was put in. I was there at the conference where everybody spoke. Two weeks later, uh, he was called by Elder Peterson and says, Have you excommunicated Robert Black yet? No. You've had two weeks, why not? Well, because uh, I, I'm trying to get used to what I'm supposed to do as, as state president. Uh, so they moved on me the night of my excommunication. One of the women who was part of the protest against me called me and said, Robert, what you doing? I said, well, I'm getting ready for 
my trial is if you didn't know. She said, what you going to do? And I said, I'm going to repent of ever teaching, ever teaching the likes of you, these, these holy principles. She said, Robert, if you hadn't taught me, I would have never known. Uh, she later married my missionary companion from back in St. Louis State. But uh, this man, state president and motorcycle cop, he rose quickly through the ranks of the uh, Salt Lake Police Department, eventually becoming, I believe, uh, a deputy uh, police chief. And when West Valley City was organized into a city, they asked him to come on as their new police chief. She did. What was his name? Trying to think. Anyway, the John Cena thing was going on. He was asked by the governor um, to coordinate things with uh, the John Singer thing. And under his direction, John Singer was murdered. Years later, I called, and nobody ever heard of it. He, he was your first police chief of crying out loud. Surely you know who he is. Um, well, let me uh, check. Uh, no, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't know who our first police chief was. Sure. So was it a cover-up then? You're saying that John Singer was murdered by this police chief and it was a cover-up? He, he disappeared? I don't know, but he died. You know anything about the John Singer? I do. Okay. Mickey uh, was cousin to my first wife. I lost the Baron by the way of my uncle. My father's name was Elmer the Baron. Their brothers. Oh, I'll have to talk to you in a minute too. In fact, um, her grandmother was courted, courted by uh, Spencer Kimball. Oh, Spencer Kimball courted your grandmother? Yes. yes. I, I, I she, only heard that story from him. I didn't really know my grandmother. She, um, she told him that she was sorry she couldn't marry him because it was not spiritual enough. Instead, <laughs> <laughs> she married. Uh, well, at the time, he was a, an insurance salesman in Thatcher, Arizona. Uh, he became my first state president. Spencer Kimball did? Spencer Kimball did, yes. The thing is, is that when my grandma died, although me a baby at the time, I really did not know her. You didn't know her? So, so after John Singer dies, what happens to you? Well, uh, there was very definitely a cover-up. 
Uh, well, I guess we should go back. Let's go back to your mission. Or, sorry, your excommunication first. What did we want first of So they excommunicated you. I was brought up on charges, about 30 charges. I did not know what they were. Had you taken on a plural wife yet? No. So I brought in witnesses in preparation for a defense against adultery and polygamy. I was found innocent of that. I was found innocent of everything except believing and teaching the Adam God doctrine and believing and teaching that the manifesto was not the literal uh, word of God. And why didn't Mark Peterson want you, or why didn't the church want you teaching that? Well, uh, it was a forbidden area. But they never denied the doctrine? Well, eventually Spencer Kimball issued a press release uh, saying, uh, I guess it was something he said in conference, saying that they uh, did not believe in that and uh, something something like that. That is also discoverable. Uh, it was uh, an editorial to the uh, uh, church uh, magazine published by the Deseret News. I can't remember the name of the magazine. But um, when he said that, I had just purchased a press and had started up the Mormon underground press. I did not know how to run the press yet. But I had a friend that was uh, in law school. He was was the the main editor to the... uh, University of Utah Law School magazine, of which I don't remember the name, but that too is discoverable. Anyway, uh, he came over and uh, helped me uh, print my response to the, uh, the, the message that President Kimball uh, gave in conference. And we tried, we worked all night long trying to get that printed. We were not able to do it. And he, uh, he assured me that when he was on his mission in Germany, that was what he did, was run a press that was identical to mine. And he said, Robert, I guess God really doesn't want you to, to print this. Two o'clock in the morning, and decided to go home. And I decided I was going to give it one last try. It worked. I printed off two thousand copies. Two thousand copies of what? Uh, I think the name of it was uh, Adam God Theory Denounced or something like that. It was a compilation of sayings. Starting off with this saying of President Kimball and a similar saying by Marky Peterson in his absurd book against the Adam God Doctrine. 
Five passes and Mark, you Peterson once supported you and he stopped supporting you. How did you know that? I guess I figured because you were excommunicated. I was a witness to a group of men who were issuing temple recommend. There was this Barber in Salt Lake. Can't remember his name right now. But he was a notorious, laborious. Uh, and apparently he stole a case of temple recommends from the uh, uh, distribution center. He did now too, but he is Wardle is his name, uh, Wardle. But his name is Discoverable. Do you know that name, Ryan? I think so. Isn't that uh, Bonnie's? Uh, Bonnie was his wife. Uh, no, Bonnie was never his wife. Okay. But he was a notorious anti-Mormon um, speaker. He didn't. He stole the recommends, but he wasn't supportive of Mormonism. Yeah, he thought it was a joke, and he was he was um, giving out. He 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 owned a barbershop, and he was <clears throat> giving out these fake of temple recommends. I mean, there's nothing fake about the temple recommends. Sure, he would just give them. Did you have to pay for the recommend? I think he gave them out. It was just a. It was just a joke. I see. And um. In one of my library classes, I did a bibliography on Geraldine Center Top Tanner, an exhaustive, an exhaustive bibliography. And the guy that I hired to type it for me thought that it was really great. So he stole it and published it on his own. But but uh, Arrington was church historian, and he wrote me and asked if he could have a copy. He already had a copy, but he sent me a check for five dollars for it, and I was going to keep that for the rest of my life. But I didn't. Lost in my many moves. John Singer was shot in the back uh, seven or nine times. The coroner's office was not allowing anybody to check him out. I had a friend that was an orthopedist, and I and he and I think friend went to the mortuary in the middle of the night, and uh, I distracted the uh, man left in charge while uh, Cully and Fred. I think one other. Is Coley Fred? I'm sorry? Who's Coley? Uh, Coley Christensen. Coley Christensen. Christensen, okay. He wrote in Adam Goddard. Adam Goddard. Yeah. It wasn't very good, but it was the best that had been done up to that point. Anyway, uh, they snuck down and examined the body and stuff, pencils, in the bullet holes to show the 
trajectory took beautiful, beautiful pictures of most Austin's bison. Nevertheless, it took pictures of the body? Yeah, yeah Coley Christensen was a doctor, wasn't he? Yeah, he was an orthopedist. Okay. And he soon found his way out of the church. I think he's back again. His adventures out of the church were not great. They arrested John's wife, and Bonnie and I went over to see her, see how she was standing up. She wasn't. She was drenched in tears. Her face was red because the the tears out of her eyes. They had arrested her, took her babies away from her. Uh, She eventually got them back, and there was a chapter two to this story that involved um, Adam uh, Swap, who had married two of her daughters. And there was a movie made about uh, all of this. I'm sure you've already seen it. Yeah, I saw it back in the 90s. Um, What's the name of the movie? Uh, I don't recall, but it was... It's called Children of Fury. Children of Fury. Yeah, it was a made-for-TV movie. So It was also called Siege at... What was it in that little community that they lived in? Marion. Siege at Marion. Siege at Marion. At Marion, yeah. That's good, because people listening to this might not have all this background, so it's always good to kind of translate it for people who don't know. Okay, um... So after John dies, what what do you do? What happens to you? Did you feel in danger? No, I was pretty much an idiot. <laughs> uh, they had they had a hearing as to whether or not they could take uh, the children legally take the children away from Vicky, and I knew that there was going to be this hearing. So I, I purchased the shotgun. Uh, like I said, I was an idiot. And I wrapped it, wrapped it around uh, my overcoat, which was which was huge, heavy. And I carried in two uh, tear gas bombs. I was ready to meet the fury of. The court. You carried were, weapons into the court? Uh, they were one, 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 they were one, 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 everybody. And though I, I, I left this shotgun wrapped in my overcoat laying on a bench. And uh, I went in there with these two uh, gas bombs. I don't know how I got through the winding, but I, I did. What was, it, what was your plan? What? what was your plan for them? I was going to bust them out and take them to Mexico. You were going to get the kids. You were going to free the kids. Like I said, I was an idiot. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand. So I could I could very well have spent the rest of my career in in prison for that. <laughs> yeah, that's usually how those things go. Uh, anyway, the hearing never happened. 
and uh, I was not caught. And uh, Vicky was eventually returned to her home with her children. And uh, two of the daughters married that idiot. Adam Swap. Adam Swap. Who was far and away more of an idiot than I was. Okay. Why why do you think that time, why was that time so violent altogether? I mean, you have Mark Hoffman with his bombs, you have all these murders, you have some suicides. Why was it so violent? What do you think? Well, first of all, there had never been a homeschooling effort uh, in the state before John Singer was killed. And he was kind of a martyr. And when he died, when the homeschooling effort uh, became a big deal. Became very politicized, political. Yeah, so there was that, and um, I created documents on the Mormon underground. Uh, I became somewhat notorious. I was the agent for Salt Lake County. The agent for Davis County was this bishop named Christensen, who was blown up in the murders. When you say agent, explain to us what that means. If, if you wanted, if you wanted, um, um, not permitted a document, uh, we could get them for you. Okay. So it was Christensen in Davis County, me in Salt Lake County, and then Utah County was uh, Strack, who ran the um, grandfather's bookstore. So what kind of documents were you getting people at the time? Uh, anything and everything. What if they wanted, like, the endowment ceremony? Could you get that for them? Yeah, I got a novel couple record of ceilings and adoption, which nobody's ever seen before. I got that out. Wow. The journals uh, of Welcome Woodruff, I got that out. Both of these things were eventually published by Signature Press. It was not supposed to be known uh, who had a copy of this, but I was approached by uh, Sam Horrible's Nibs. He ran a bookstore in Salt Lake City. Sam Weller's book? Sam Weller, asking for a copy of my Welfare Bullion Journals. I was given $100 for a microfilm copy. You know, after I was excommunicated from the church, I felt I had full license to take whatever I pleased, and and I was pretty successful in doing that. How did you get some of the documents? So I got the place of Laban without killing anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Now, what, what was your question? How did, how did you get the documents out? How would you even... Were they locked down then like they are now, or? Well, they're not locked down at all now. Hmm. Uh, at that time, I had a lieutenant who I tried very hard to mask his identity. I stole a, a book of Temple Recommends, a 
and gave him a temple recommend, which I think Coley signed, and, and uh, my wife, uh, Karen, signed this bishop and big president, and uh, they used this so that he would be able to access those records. I had a copy of, of uh, deeds, which I gave him, that uh, was all handwritten. So, it, you know, for somebody who wasn't looking at what he was uh, reading, uh, they wouldn't know the difference. Anyway, he took the, uh, he took the microfilm roll and went on to the hall where they had a, a Xerox machine. And they were, he was supposed to show them the line that held the name of his ancestor. It was a long line that he was standing on. And by the time he got to the head of the line, the line changed his mind, went back down. But nevertheless, he he swapped uh, that role of microfilm uh, for my role of microfilm on deeds. And he went in and uh, stared at that deeds uh, thing until a lady came and announced that she had his lunch and please, uh, please come out and get it. Went out, got the original documents, and swapped it back. I took the Purloin uh, microfilm to a place in Salt Lake. It was one of only two places west of Denver that printed hard copy microfilm. I took it there. I told him I wanted a hard copy. He looked at that. He says, hey, I recognize you. I about fell through the floor. He said, you're from the Temple Index Girl, aren't you? Would you just put this on your tab? <laughs> uh, I said, no, I'll still pay for it out of my pocket. But the microphone company was run by two bishops, and uh, he didn't really know what I had. So I made a copy of it. I gave a copy to Cully, and uh, eventually um, Anderson got a copy. His copy was from uh, the copy that I had purloined. Anyway, the three of us, Christian Center, Davis, Scotty, me, and Salt Lake, Grandpa's bookstore, we, we, uh, we traded this kind of stuff back and forth. And that's how I got a copy of the Secret Journals with Clayton. Mm. I was in the process of publishing them when I was put on notice by Ehat's attorney that I would be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I, I didn't have any money for that, so they were able to intimidate me. Uh, kind of doing the same thing. And they intimidated him. But Gerald and Sandra Tanner uh, could not be intimidated. So she went ahead and published it. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that I did. I had all kinds of stuff. There would be people who would come to me at 2 o'clock in the morning and they would say, hey, uh, I've got this microphone and you're interested in it. And it would have 
red leader, and that would say on the cross, do not copy this. This is the vault copy. So I got documents like that. Hmm. I'd copy it and then return it to the person who was working at the uh, archives in the middle of the night. Nobody was ever found out, except that Christensen was killed. Uh, let's, move, let's move along to chapter 2. Anyway, having been excommunicated from the church and feeling full license to do as I was inspired, I did this uh, brass plates thing. But I also investigated the church of the firstborn and was eventually, uh, well, uh, my excommunication was in November. I converted in March, if I remember correctly. And, uh, so, did you go down to Mexico for that? Or? Uh, we'll pause this. So, no. so for people who don't know what the Church of the Firstborn is, it's one of the LeBaron groups. Were they in Mexico at the time? Well, we were in the Ross LeBaron group, and none of us were in Mexico at that time. So, how did you beat them? How did you meet Ross LeBaron? I was introduced by Fred. And tell us about Ross. Uh, well, he was definitely eccentric. Uh, he uh, would herd a, a bunch of goats. And they were referred to as the holy goats. <laughs> <laughs> where, where was he living at that time? He was living in a shed. Um, uh, one of those commercial sheds where you put your things in protection. I've heard about this shed that he lived in. It was in South Salt Lake. But so what made someone like you who had been rubbing shoulders with LDS apostles feel like a man in a shed with a bunch of holy goats had something to offer? Well, uh, his people knew the fullness of the gospel. The fullness. Uh, in a completely different way than the rest of fundamentalists understand the fullness of the gospel. So, talking about the fullness of the priesthood, uh, which meant uh, those who had their second anointing. If you read my book, you'll find out all about it. It's, uh, I published stuff in there that's never been published before or since. Like a copy of about eight different second anointing ceremonies. All in there. I can tell you are not ready for this interview. So, um, I'll I don't know. I, I think you'd be surprised. Lindsay's done some pretty intensive interviews, even on this subject. So. I just, when I interview, I want to make sure people that are listening, if they only ever listen to this, that they would understand. Yes. Well, uh, I was excommunicated in November. I was uh, rebaptized. 
in one of those uh, places uh, at the spring that I had a lot of individual uh, pools. Over by the airport? Or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was that common at the time? Were a lot of people baptized there by the airport? Uh, I was. Who baptized you? Fred. Fred Collier? Yes. Okay. So you converted to, what was it like? How was it organized? What did you do? What What was there joining was a, it? There was a presiding patriarch. Boss. And, uh, and his minions. And Which I, was men that had been sealed to him. Is that correct? Yes. So you were still practicing the law of adoption? Uh, yes, we were. As a matter of fact, uh, we had been since uh, 1950 when it was organized among the original members of the Church of the Firstborn yeah. was um, Brigham Young III and uh, Chase Kimmel, uh, Hebrew Chase Kimmel III, except he was called Chase. Um, Did you have your second anointing by, by now? No, but I was chosen as Ross's uh, successor at this time was given all of the authority and uh, keys that he himself held. And so when he died, uh, I just did not like to be a leader. Huh. I was more interested in being an Indian than a chief. I see. So, um, so talk to me about when you... Uh, decide to take on a plural wife. My wife was not in favor of the deal. Uh, Alma, Rebecca's father, wanted me to go down there, and I told him I couldn't because my employment was such couldn't risk those doubts that I had. I was an engineer out at Tula Army Depot, and I was an instructor at uh, Utah Technical College, as it was called then, uh, Salt Lake Community College now, <laughs> and I told him I couldn't come. I'm sorry, but I had a, I had a really good collection of documents by then. He wanted me to come and bring my books. I'm sorry, Alma, I can't. Uh, after saying that, the next morning I was fired from my job as an engineer for the Army Depot. You were fired. I was fired, and I was. I was. Um, my contract was up. Uh, with the college, and they didn't, they would not renew it. Uh, 
They had tried to get rid of me before, but they couldn't find anybody who knew the material like what I did. So they sent one of their staff back to school to learn this. When he came back, when they hired him, uh, I was off. So uh, this is a sign from God that I was supposed to go to Mexico, along with my books, which I did. And I joined up with uh, Rebecca's father, who said, look, I will give you as a gift of my daughter if you come and uh, mingle with us. I, I had my own notoriety at this time, and this is important for Alma to last very long because a uh, person like me, a troublemaker like I was, and a troublemaker I will, will always be, he made a mistake. He should never have left me up. Anyway, I got I, I got a prize for, for Rebecca. So your first wife's name was? Karen. And she wasn't supportive of this, but yeah. you took Rebecca on as second? Um, more or less. There was, uh, there was another sister who was killed. She was my second. Rebecca was my third. I see. What was the wedding ceremony like? With Rebecca? Yes. I had uh, three of them. Uh, you were sealed to three women? No, he was sealed to her three times. Yes. Oh, you had three ceremonies. I see. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, the first time, uh, Rebecca's brothers were making fun of her because she didn't have an engagement ring. <laughs> And uh, so I gathered up all of the money that I could for one of the uh, Casa Founders search of the jewelry store. They only had one, and nobody there knew where it was. Eventually I found it. They only had one ring that was large enough to fit her finger. I purchased it. It cost me every every dollar that I had. Anyway, we went back uh, to the community and we went back to her brothers. And I said, see this, this is not an engagement ring, it is a wedding ring, and from now on, she is my wife. So, they thought I was kidding. I wasn't. The second ceremony, uh, all of the lights in the community were invited, and we had a formal ceremony conducted by Rebecca's father. And uh, I was working for Banco Rural at the time, uh, designing the, their first uh, computer systems, writing all the code for the bank. It was a big deal. It was a way big deal. And the bank president uh, came to my wedding and he gave me as a wedding present uh, three things. Full use of his car. And he'd already uh, uh, rented a a hotel room in the, in the finest that um, Casas uh, Grandes had. And he gave us 
of his perusal uh, to spend uh, a week in the in the villa that he owned in Guanajuato. And we went down there and had the time of our lives. So did you like Rebecca and did she like you? Well, it was hard at first. Uh, I told the family that I was not going to marry anybody unless they showered uh, every other day. And, <laughs> and well, yeah, she was coming. I was her school teacher, and she was coming to school smelling of urine and blood stains all over her dress. And she had to be cleaned up. Anyway, she was, and I fell in love with her, and I married her. What did your first wife think? She was aghast, and uh, she had a, a cousin, a nephew, who was an attorney, and she divorced me at that very moment. How did you feel about that? I loved her. She was the love of my life. Uh, she didn't understand it that way. She thought of it as a kind of betrayal. There is a biography of me, by the way, somewhere that she wrote. That uh, Karen wrote it? Yes. Was it very friendly or fair to you? <laughs> well, it made me out to be a kind of... It was more friendly than what I deserved. I see. Nevertheless, uh, it painted me as a, uh, a vocabulary escapes <laughs> me. Not asshole. Something more friendly than that. Anyway, it does exist. If you bother me about it, or I'll try to get you a copy. Yeah, we would. We would like that. So you took on Rebecca. What happens after that? My sister Judy was killed in an accident. Took on Rebecca, and I got kidney stones. The United Community we were living in decided that they were not united enough to pay my medical bill. So I brought uh, Rebecca to California to live uh, with my parents who wanted me back in the church. So I tried my level best to come back. Um, since I was only excommunicated for the Adam Dodson stuff, they had never heard of the Adam Dodson before at all. State president. And my earlier never heard of it either. When he asked it, he says, well, I've never heard of that. What is it all about? And I told him, and he says, nah, I've never heard of such a thing. Obviously, that's false doctrine. <laughs> anyway, in California, I had gathered a defense. And at my initial hearing in front of the high council, I passed this out among the men, and they were converted to it, much to my surprise, every one of them. So I was active again in the church. I did the uh, Sunday... Uh, did they rebaptize you? Uh, no. I did the Sunday magazine. Uh, I, did, I, I took care of the programming for the mission, took care of their, their mich machines. I received a letter of commendation from the mission president. And I did this for five years. I was a good little boy. What, what year would this have been? What year time frame? This would have been 
this would have been 1990, five years. My son was born in 1990, so it's easy for me to remember. Anyway, after five years, um, my state president, uh, not the same one that excommunicated me, but the one in California, he was amazed that I was having so much problems. And he would repeatedly ask permission to get me baptized. But Ogden Kraut sent a man to me uh, to get picture of a blessing, and I gave him one. And one of the, one of the witnesses, uh, it was Tim, uh, one of the witnesses had just been promoted to be the oldest corn president, and the oldest corn president was promoted to be bishop. Anyway, uh, Tim, last name, Rathbone. Rathbone, had got weak knees. He was very demanding in his demeanor, and uh, he caused a ruckus. He'd only been uh, eldritch corn president for a couple of days, and people that were with him were turning on him. So he turned me into the church for giving a picture of a blessing without the proper documentation. My bishop called me and said, what are you doing, Robert? What are you talking about, Bishop? He says, tell me about this blessing. Oh, no, the picture of a blessing. He says, you don't have the authority to do that. He says, I've been a bishop and a state president for years and years. I'm here to tell you, you will never be allowed back in this church in this lifetime or in the next. Wow. So I started, I, I brought the church and the first board together. And we started meeting uh, twice a year, as was the tradition before. Where were you living at at this point again? Was this when you were in Victorville? Or? Oh, this is prior to Victorville, but... Okay. Yes, this is in uh, San Bernardino. So where would you meet twice a year? Where would you go? There was a member, Ed Alder, who lived in the West Desert. would be to his house. I had moved during this time to Victorville. And most of our reunions were there in Victorville. And we had a collection of interesting people uh, come. Now, it's, it's different than most, uh, most of the group paradigms because all of you men that were meeting together were, in essence, patriarchs or connected to a patriarch. More, more or less, that's true. Who had uh, the ceiling keys? I did. You did. And where did you get them? The story is in that book. Please read the book. And Ross claims that he got his from... Alma Deer. Uh, who got them from Lesser. Who got them from Benjamin F. Johnson. Am I correct in that? No, that's correct. Well, I, I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit, because I want on record. Uh, you and I have discussed the topic of uh, the uh, AUB or the Allred Group. We have, uh, we've discussed it over the past decade, and um, you and I haven't always agreed on it, but I think that there should be, uh, that it's unquestionable that the AUB would not have their temple ceremonies and endowments but had it not been for you. Had it not been for me, that. And uh, I, I would like uh, your story of that to go on record, your interactions with uh, Owen Allred and Joseph Thompson, and, because this is something that you and I have discussed quite a bit. So, okay, listen. Um, in, in the beginning, not about more about the, the middle. One of my adopted sons wanted to live socially 
order executive order. And we weren't doing that, so he he jumped in bed with John, uh, who was a member of the AUB in good standing. Not as John. John Llewellyn? Uh, no. Uh, no. John Cross. <laughs> I'm exhausting all yeah, the Yeah, you're shooting in the dark. Um, anyway, John Bryant. John Bryant, yeah. He joined up with John Bryant. And we were not too happy about that. Thanksgiving of that year. And I don't remember the year. Uh, we had our annual meeting, and everybody decided that we were going to live the principal. What year was that? I'm trying to remember. It would have been prior to 1980. It's all in the book. It would have been prior to 1980. So uh, Ross uh, organized this uh, solar uh, social uh, group, United Order, and we were agreed that uh, that we would have all things in common. But at this time, uh, another adopted son uh, was writing a book. Ross went to him and wanted $500 out of his kitty that he, that he was putting together the book for. Why do you want that $500, Ross? Well, I want to I want to purchase some jewelry and we're going to go into the jewelry business. So that was, uh, we were working in his shop, which is uh, his living room in a condemned home. There, under the power line, he was given free access to use it until they raised the building. But it was before 1980 because uh, Knut and I decided that we were going to go down and interview some of the lights in Mexico. That's a Knut, Knutson? Knut, Knutson. We, we wanted to interview Lydia but whenever we headed that direction, my car would break down. After a half a dozen times, we decided that perhaps that was the wrong way to head. So we turned around and headed for Baja. We had no incident all the way down there. Things were strange in Mexico. It was almost as if it was another country. So we're on the interstate and we're headed to, headed to Baja. And then all of a sudden, uh, the interstate disappears. And uh, foot below us is the uh, highway bedding. You're you're supposed to know. If you're traveling in Mexico, you're supposed to know. The rules are if there's three stones in the road, that means that that is the end of the road. We didn't know that. Anyway, uh, we made our way down uh, to to uh, Los Molinos and uh, interviewed Alma and picked up as much literature as we could find. Well, I, I, needed, I, I needed to complete the collection, a particular pamphlet called Priesthood Expounded, which was outstanding. That was really good. It, was, you know, it could have been better, but it was good. And Ross was jealous of it. Eventually, yeah, who wrote uh, Priesthood Expanded again? Pardon me? Who wrote Priesthood Expanded? Erbo. Erbo, okay. Ross was jealous of it. 
he eventually put out one of his own, but it was a product of his madness and in his uh, nadir. His light had been extinguished by his his craziness. Anyway, I brought up uh, this guy, the bishop's agent, of Albert Bishop's agent from San Diego. Brought him up to Salt area as, as a guest of mine. And they lived in our basement for two weeks. Anyway, at the beginning of this time, Ross forbade us to take anybody into the Church of the First Born unless they had a testimony that he was the uh, one mighty and strong. When he announced this, Ed Alder said, Ross, if you do this, this will be the end of the Church of the First Born. Ross says to Ed, he says, are you saying this in the name of the Lord? And Ross raised his arm to the square. I mean, uh, and all the raised his arm to the square. And he said, Ross, by the authority of the priesthood which I hold, I'm telling you that if you continue this, the church of the firstborn will be destroyed. And Lord is armed. But he was amazed during this two-week period of the initial days of the man from San Diego. His name was Dwayne Hafen. I know Dwayne. Do you? I do. Anyway, Dwayne uh, was the last man to receive the priesthood that Ross held, except that Dwayne didn't know the doctrine. The doctrine that he was taught by Ross was doctrine in Ross's nature. Uh, it was completely screwy. And there were those of us that were embarrassed by it. And Ross, um, while uh, Dwayne was staying with us, dissolved the Church of the Firstborn. Uh, within weeks of the, and all this prophecy. So there's only three of us that had received the, the, the keys uh, from Ross. I was the first to receive it. The second was Clark. And the third was Fred. And the fourth was Dwayne. You see, I can't, I can't count very well anymore. <laughs> So four, not three. So um, I started. I started um, in Victorville. I I started doing uh, uh, endowments and stuff. And uh, where did you do those at? In my home. In your home. And what garment did, did you use? The garment in the endowment. Uh, yes, we used the regular. LDS garment? Old style garment. The old style. It was called. That ties up the front. Ties the front. But the already movement, for some reason or another, actually I do know the reason, had changed uh, the the marking on the right side. Ah, they, they did it because they suspected that that was the way it should have been. 
Well, I can prove that it had not been that way. Even from Nauvoo, it was the way that the LDS had it. So the all-red group still has the wrong marking on the right side of the garment? I don't know whether they still do or not, but now that they have the, the documents, they certainly should have changed it. Sure. But, um, so when Ross uh, died, things uh, went to uh, his uh, lieutenant, his uh, model, Captain Douglas, was then, and he died exactly one year later. It was up in the air, and it was a contest between Fred, I mean, a uh, contest between uh, me and Tom. Frank? Yes, I told Tom, hey, I'm just an Indian here, I, I don't want, uh, I don't want to be a leader. I had tried for many years to find somebody to give that to. I didn't want it. He said, well, I'll do it. And he played back uh, his second annoying tour that was on uh, Where did he get that done? Uh, he got Ross separately from me. Ross's uh, cubicle. I see. Uh, anyway, uh, later I said that I said to him, you know, that your second annoying is not legal. Why do you say that, Robert? Because this and that and the other thing are not in your second annoying. The second annoying that, that, that Tom got is in my book, second annoying that he gave his followers. Uh, that's in my book. You really need to read my book. <laughs> is it still on Amazon? I don't know, uh, but... We can link to it when we put this up online. I can give you a copy. That would be great. Um, do you have a copy? <laughs> so, no, I lost my copy when I had a I had an online, you know, like a digital version. You want and, uh, you want a hard copy? Yeah, I'd like that. Uh, uh, Rebecca, are you uh, sleepy up? Yes, I have just read the phone asleep. So wait, copy. this is Rebecca that we talked about. <laughs> That you married? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm his wife. Well, I knew that. I just didn't know. He talked about 25 wives, so I didn't no. know if you were... Rebecca? I'll go and get it. Two of them, please. Check out their cell link on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, we can link to that so people listening can buy the book. I'm sorry. I just... I haven't been sleeping very well the last two nights. Oh, it's no problem. Just, you know... Please. I don't, I don't know where I'm from, but you look very familiar. I just, your face is... Uh, when you guys were living in New Mexico, her dad came to visit you guys. Her dad's oh. Mel Sullivan. Oh. Yeah, he was, he was going to straighten me out. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> he came there at the invitation Talk to me about the rumors about the LeBarons being uh, crazy or violent or dangerous and the hit list and all that stuff. I know that there are different LeBaron groups, but where did uh, you we, land on all that? We, we were not a violent group. There were some of us that were wearing a sidearm uh, because they were afraid. 
What were you afraid of? Uh, evil, werewolves, minions. So you were afraid of the actual violent group? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't. But um, uh, Steve Bjorkman was, and Ross was, and... uh, Were you on his list? Pardon me? Were you on Ervil's list? No, apparently he he, he never ever knew who I was. Oh, okay. Thank you, Rebecca. No, Ervil was my uncle. Did you know Ervil? No, I didn't. Probably a good thing. That's a good book. Yeah. So it sounds it, like there's a lot in there that's going to give us more packed. information. Do you talk about yourself in here? The last two chapters. So would would this book include teachings of Ross, or is this more your interpretation of the priesthood? Um, uh, it is teachings of the truth, mostly. Mostly that book, a narration of sources. Okay. Similar to what Ogden does, Ogden Kraut. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Ogden would come twice a year uh, to visit me and to read my library for documents. One of the people that uh, my uncle got and had killed was his only brother. I mean, his only brother. Yeah. I know that story. It's a very sad story. Yes, it is. Anyways, Ogden Kraut and his sidekick, uh, Hal, uh, uh, maybe, maybe, excuse me, they had received their second anointings from Fruitcake, uh, who lived on the other side of Page, Arizona. Um, uh, Alex Joseph. Alex Joseph. And uh, his family knew nothing of it. I knew because Hal told me, and Hal was a member of Ross's group with us. So when I announced that fact, his family was in some distress. Uh, they knew they knew that they knew that I must be uh, a liar. We were a small movement. Those that were converted to Ross. Numbered just about a hundred. So there is a numbered list available. I don't know where, but uh, it, it is available of all those names. On that list, I am number 13, meaning that I am trouble. <laughs> so. so. So where are you now? What do you believe now? Well, uh, I was converted to Islam by an angel. Uh, the conversion process is really simple. You state in front of witnesses that there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is his prophet. How, how did that happen when you were such a servant for Jesus, for Christ, and, and Mormon doctrine? How do you accept both beliefs now, or have you rejected one? There's a lot of people among my Muslim friends who think that I'm trying to convert Islam into modern fundamentalists. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, not, they're not really happy about how things go, but uh, as a product of all of that, I had many 
wires that wanted to be sealed to me. Uh, some were only sealed to me for 10 minutes when they discovered that I was not going to support them. Were these women that followed the Church of the Firstborn? Uh, they didn't know anything about the Church of the Firstborn. Would they call themselves independent? Some were Christian, some were Muslim. When the angel came, there was a witness. I married her. But uh, her divorced husband came to her and said, Look, I want you back. So she asked him what to do. I said, Go on back with him. And we talked for another three or four months after that. But uh, then she stopped listening to me and didn't for three years. She is known to the um, Muslim community as um, Shakina bin, uh, last name, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, is elusive. But she is, she's, so she's Muslim, but she's sealed to you as a plural wife in the New and Everlasting Covenant? Yes. How many Muslim wives do you have sealed to you? Actually, her name can be found easily uh, by Verona here because we are all together in a secret group. Hmm. A secret Facebook group. Okay, so you're, are you, how many women are you sealed to right now? 25. 25 still. But you only live with Rebecca. Correct. I see. Um, and how many of those wives are Muslim? Most. Most of them. And so I'm just curious about this part because this I didn't know anything about. You maintain uh, belief in Islam and Christianity at the same time? Okay, first of all, the word Christian and Christianity is vulgar. Huh. It didn't exist until the first Christian church was organized in, uh, okay, the name of the town uh, escapes me, but the history of this is in the book of Acts. Antioch is the name of the town. Anyway, uh, those of us, and long before I knew any, anything, well, uh, that's not true. long before I joined up with uh, the Muslims. I lost a thread. I'm sorry. Uh, help me find it again. She was asking. Um, I was just asking if you if you still hold on to your Mormon belief with Islam, Rebecca. I'd like to talk to you too if you if we have a few minutes. So, so uh, yeah, I did hold on to, to that. But we still did ordinances of many adoptions, many second anointings. Uh, not necessarily in the uh, Muslim group, uh, but they were there. I was adopted into a, a Sufi group, which went uh, teaching the student line of authority directly to Muhammad. Uh, taking the pledge, most people say or uh, are, are asked to say part of the pledge that they support uh, the Quran. Do you read the Quran? I and do not support it. You do not support the Quran? I do not support it. Why not? As a matter of fact, my secret, my uh, second secret group called Problems, which was um, my uh, airing of my problems to my Muslim friends who would help me understand the truth. Do you recognize Muhammad as a prophet? Yes. I and do. you recognize Joseph Smith as a tr prophet as well? I do. Okay. I guess that's what I was asking, how you <sighs> meld the two together. 
Well, Joseph Smith, you know, he was, he's near to us in time. And it's the propaganda uh, people were, were defending him uh, 600 years A.D. Uh, then his story would have been whitewashed to the extent that Muhammad's has been. I see. But Muhammad, uh, still, his story is just kind of amazing. It's very similar to Joseph Smith's in many ways. In many ways. Um, in the Quran, there's a mention about full marriage. And we're told that you can have up to four. You have 25, though. I know. <laughs> Muhammad did also. At 11, everybody knew about, but there was more. Yeah. The paper's done on that, um, which I, I have the paper in French, but I uh, think I have it in English somewhere now. So you're no longer part of the Church of the Firstborn. You just um, are, I guess, independent. Okay. The, the night before I was visited by the angel, I had given the mantle to another man named uh, Ken Floyd. Uh, his grandmother was one of Ross's other mothers, and his wife was a cousin of mine. Now, we didn't know that until after everything was said and done, uh, but that's where it worked out. They're in hiding in the state of Washington. So they carry the mantle, and you... I don't know how this works. So when you give your mantle to someone else, do you give it up? Not entirely. They have the promise of the mantle. I continue to have the, uh, I, I don't remember. Anyway, I continue to have that uh, so that things can continue to be done. Uh, my. Uh, Are you a prophet? Am I a prophet? You saw an angel like Muhammad and like Joseph? Yeah. When, when I became a member of the uh, Sufi group, I was asked about that. Told, I told him, I said, look, uh, I am a Navi prophet, and I am a uh, medic, meaning king. Do hmm. uh, you accept me in this? And he says, absolutely, absolutely we can, as long as you don't claim authority that is higher than Muhammad or Jesus Christ or, uh, what's his name on the mountain? Moses. Moses. Uh, but I don't think he knows all the things that I'm doing. If he did, I think that he would be a cast. What would you like people listening to know? When one becomes a Muslim. He pronounces a, a thing that among the Jews is called the Shema. Uh, it was also pronounced by Jesus Christ, the Shema. Among us it is called the, uh, well, the, uh, the name escapes me for the moment. But basically it is, there's only one God and uh, it is Allah. Well, what about uh, the Son of God? Well, uh, there are no sons, according to, according to the traditions of, of uh, Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad uh, venerates the Virgin Mary. 
He tells uh, the story which includes her virginity. It's all in uh, in the cutout. So you know, I I can embrace um, Islam because of the one God. I can embrace uh, Muhammad because of the rule of Allah, and it was the rule of Allah that was, that came down upon the shoulder of Jesus. And that was the holy anointing that made Jesus king. Anyway, that uh, thing, the, the rule, was bestowed on me again uh, by uh, the Sufi saint that brought me into the uh, into Islam. And the woman that was uh, that was there, she didn't want to become known at first because. She has standing in Islam. Uh, she's known as a healer, and she's known as an, a uh, known as a historian. And Rebecca, oh. we just finished printing off a copy of that book. Can you find it? Oh. It's a thick book, has many pages, four hundred pages. We, we had a hassle, you and me, because I I remember what you're talking about okay. now. Okay. Does anybody mind if I turn on the soy cooler? It is hot. I don't mind. Uh, I have to. We have to go soon. I have another yeah, meeting. Yeah. But Rebecca, could I ask you a few questions? Sure. Can you can you just talk to me a little bit about yourself? Are you okay with that? Just yeah. tell me. Yeah. Um, There's something you need to know about Karen. So it's a. Uh, it's only in the, the Robert's mind that their marriage, Karen does not consider herself married to Robert. Do you consider she, him married to other women, or are you? I, when it comes to the women in Ghana, and these women that he just marries over the phone, I, I can't tell you that I understand any, how any of that works. Do you believe in the principle? She means poor marriage, Rebecca. Um, well, I was, I was raised in polygamy. My dad was actually a polygamist. He got married uh, 50, at least 15 wives. So... The one we were married, Rebecca entered into a vow and promised that she would not uh, impede uh, my collection. So I would say to some extent, yes, I'm a leader of polygamy. Are you LDS? I'm... Yeah. Yeah, I still consider myself LDS even though I haven't been to the... I haven't been to the church in a, quite a while. Okay. Are you converted to Islam? Um... Not very much. Not very much? No. Does that bother you that she... Doesn't recognize all your wives, or uh, every person is independent of themselves, and women included. Um, special doctrines for women. One is they do not have to attend mosque. They do not have to do salat. 
Um, they do not have to pay uh, uh, their duties in the home. And that's where they're expected to be. Yes. Uh, also, also, when I, when I married Robert, I was 17. Now I was in the fourth grade, Robert's fourth grade class, because my dad really did not want his kids getting an education. That's why you know, he he had a problem with that. Um. Anyways. Uh, and uh, there was one day that everybody uh, in the fourth grade, everybody else was misbehaving except for myself. And, uh, and yeah. um, Robert um, asked everybody in class um, who wants to write a hundred sentences and just um, making. And making and I was putting out that if you don't behave yourself and writing a hundred sentences saying what you're doing wrong, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was not even though I was the only one that um wasn't that wasn't misbehaving, I raised my hand because this was the first and only time I was hearing God's voice saying this is the guy you want to marry. You need to marry. This is the guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I wrote hundred sentences down, Robert. I love him. I want to marry him. It was... And you were 17? Yeah. Oh, 17. And this is when Robert knew for sure that I wanted to marry him before that. Were you happy? Was were you happy to get married and yes. go to Mexico on your honeymoon? And actually, I was born in Mexico. I was born in Chihuahua, and I lived in Mexico for 17 years. I see. Did you like coming to California? Uh, California was wonderful, and um. And, and, and Utah, in my opinion, is just as good. I love living there. I, just, I love Utah. Um, and for an Italian moved to uh, Utah, then I really miss California. Um, do you do you follow Robert as a prophet? So I need to have the 380. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, in a way, I consider him a prophet. Catch him. Yeah. I was, I was um, paid, I paid way yeah. ahead. Um, uh, the lady, the lady that was taking and, um, well, the, the, reason, the reason why I had been, um, uh, I had been, um, I hadn't been taking a shower. I wasn't cleaning up because I, my, my family, I, I was born with an extra chromosome which, which he retarded. And my family treated me like I couldn't learn anything because I, of my disability. I didn't learn anything. Were they mean to you? Uh, part of my family, yes, they were. Uh, the way Robert puts it is that they treated me like, like uh, worse than uh, they would treat a dog. Like, mm. They would at least 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So marrying Robert helped you. Yes, you were treated I, was, better. I was definitely say that. When I married Robert and people started treating me like an adult, yeah. and then I felt, felt really liberated, like I had been, like a big burden had been, had been lifted up from me. That makes sense. I can imagine. Yes. That's a hard way to grow up when you're treated that way. Well, thank you for talking to me. Is there anything else you want to say before I turn this off? Um, I can't, I can't exactly say that I knew Ross because my dad... Uh, the, the only the, the one that the, the first time I met Ross, uh, my uncle Ross was when Robert introduced me to him. My dad did not introduce me to Ross. I did not really know my uncle Ross. Pause us and then just have him for a minute. This is Lindsay again. So you get the gist. The audio became too hard to handle at this point. There were several points during the interview when the phone would ring and interrupt us and Robert would take care of some business on speakerphone. And this is one of them. The call would go on for some time. And so I ultimately decided to scrap the rest of the interview with Rebecca. It's unfortunate because Rebecca actually had a lot to say. Remember when I talked about Rebecca at the very beginning of this podcast, she is someone who, as Robert explained, was gifted to him by the LeBarons for the fact that he would come and speak to their group. You can hear Rebecca talk a little bit about her embarrassment about why she wasn't allowed to shower and why she was treated like a dog. That's why I left that part in there, even though the audio is hard to hear. She would go on to tell me about her children. She has two children who don't live with her anymore. That's a mixed blessing for her, having them close and having them far away. She also takes really good care of Robert. That should be underscored. The entire time while we were doing this interview, Rebecca would get up and rustle around in the kitchen and get Robert medicine and take good care of him. I suspect she's been doing that for a long time. This interview just gives you a little bit of insight into what it means to be a Mormon fundamentalist prophet or someone who has a following. Rebecca is an important reminder that behind all of these men are these women doing all of this work. Now, Rebecca, of course, you heard her talk about it a little bit blithely, but she seemed to dismiss most of Robert's internet marriages and phone marriages as not valid. And that brings up another interesting paradox. What is a ceiling and can it just be a temporary thing? Would Joseph Smith have done that in this day and age? We know that Brigham Young especially played around with the idea of time-only ceilings and time and eternity. So is it just different in the internet age where you can just get on the internet and seal yourself to someone? We see this happening in the remnant movement. There's rumors of bonded marriage, the idea that people chose each other before they came to this earth life or in a previous earth life in a different mortal probation were sealed to each other. And so why not seal each other now? What about special connections with people? What does that mean? Can you just seal yourself to anyone, even someone you met on the internet? Robert, for me, asks all these questions, all these paradoxical questions about ethics, about faith, about truth, about religion. The guy's a Muslim Mormon. You don't run into very many of those at all. 
So I hoped you enjoyed this interview, even though the audio was a little spotty. And we're going to continue covering the topic of fundamentalist leaders in the 1970s. We'll see you next episode. to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.